Happy winter solstice. Uh, today is the official start of Yule, so glad of Yule. In public relations and in politics, spin is a form of propaganda. It's achieved through knowingly providing a biased interpretation, a false interpretation, a knowingly false interpretation of an event or a, uh, a campaign to influence public opinion about some organization or public figure or uh, which drug is safe or not safe um, or who, yeah, public figure. So while traditional public relations and advertising may manage their presentations of facts, <laughs> Right, like they do. Spin often implies the use of disingenuous, deceptive, um, manipulative tactics. Because the frequent association with um, or between um, spin and press conferences, especially government press conferences, the rooms uh, which these conferences take place are sometimes called the spin room. Uh, public relations, advertisers, pollsters, and media consultants who develop deceptive or misleading messages may re be referred to as spin doctors or spin meisters. <laughs> now, only the ones who uh, develop deceptive and misleading messages, the rest are, of course, extremely honest and open and transparent and very um, cogent and clear, uh, not misleading. <laughs> so a standard tactic used in spinning is, of course, to reframe or to modify the perception of an issue or an event to reduce any negative impact it may have on public opinion. For example, a company whose top-selling uh, product is found to have a significant safety problem, or it may never have been tested for safety and efficacy in the first place uh, for the standard period of time which things are normally tested for. Um, for example, a company who is selling a, a product found to have a significant safety problem uh, or an injury problem taken by the uh, or by the people who take this product, they uh, they may reframe the issue by criticizing the safety of their competitors. Probably not so much if they don't want people to even think about how unsafe the product is, or they might use the uh, you know the the the, the catch-all that the the industry is generally an unsafe industry to be in. So everybody should accept a certain level of risk. But uh, with like pharmaceuticals, that used to be the case. But with the jab, that is not what they are doing. They're just attacking anybody who dares question it. So that's the spin. The spin is, if you're injured by this product, you're the problem. Um, so this, you know, they might have... Um, catchy sound bites or slogans, you know, short, um, succinct, easy to remember things for the brainwashed sheep to recall, to, to know what the, uh, the biased point of view is that they should have. So this tactic could enable the company, uh, to refocus the public's, uh, away from 
a negative aspect of the product. Spinning is typically a service uh, by paid media advertisers and media consultants. The largest and most powerful companies will have in-house employees and sophisticated units with high expertise in spinning issues. While spin is often considered to be a private sector uh, tactic uh, with the uh, with the exposure of the intelligence community and people looking into things, it's becoming quite obvious, especially since the 90s and 2000s, that politicians and political staff are using deceptive spin tactics to manipulate or deceive the public. Spin may include burying potentially negative new information by releasing it at the end of the workday or uh, on the last day of a long weekend or I mean the last day before a long weekend and uh, selectively cherry picking quotes from previous speeches made by their, uh, their employer or an opposing uh, politician to give the impression that they advocate a certain position or purposely leaking information uh, about a, uh, an opposition politician or candidate that casts them in a negative light. And uh, this is obviously used more than just uh, political rhetoric. It's used for um, industry rhetoric. And uh, there's different, there are larger organizations than national governments. There are the NGOs that are using this and there are the World Economic Forum and uh, a lot of these evil globalist uh, organizations obviously use this and to a, uh, a higher quality of spin than what we normally see with the Trump uh, prime ministers and that level. So the rise of political spin, Edward Bernays, I've done several uh, podcasts on him, as being called the father of public relations. Bernays helped tobacco and alcohol companies make consumption of their product more socially acceptable. (laughs) So is that, this goes to the morals again, I've talked about this ad nauseum, about the morals of somebody in public relations. It doesn't matter what they personally think or believe, and it's better if they have no morals because a company like a tobacco company or an alcohol company or big oil or a pharmaceutical company is pushing something that may not be to the best interest of the public. And these public relations people have to spin it to make it seem like, hey, stupid public, uh, this is good for you, when in fact it is not. Right, so... Um, and, uh, anyways, Bernays was proud of his work as a propagandist. He was not ashamed of it. So throughout the nineties, the use of spin by politicians and parties accelerated, especially in the uh, United Kingdom, the emergence of 24 hour news, increased pressures placed on journalists like at CNN and these other places to provide nonstop content, which further intensified by the competitive nature of broadcasters and newspapers and content quality declined, depending on how you look at it, how you frame it. So it declined from our perspective, the public's perspective, to uh, 
the 24-hour news and political parties' techniques for handling this increased demand for content, which is kind of interesting because if you look at the internet and on social media, not social media, but on, uh, you know, uh, Rumble and these, uh, you know, video uh, outlets, <laughs> the, uh, the there's no shortage of really interesting new content. So the fact that these chumps in the news organizations couldn't come up with new content indicates how boring or how uncreative they actually are. So they actually, they had to start, uh, you know, spinning, which is actually, I guess that is a form of creativity, but <laughs> anyways. Um, so this, this increase of demand caused journalists to rely more heavily on public relations industry as a source of stories and advertising revenue as a profit source making them more susceptible to spin because, hey, if uh, Pfizer or some big pharmaceutical company wants you to spin something and they are paying for your the advertising on your, uh, <laughs> your channel, um, what are the chances of your ethics overriding uh, your paycheck? So especially with the class, the quality of character of reporters and journalists, right? So... And, and, and public relations, because this is not just about them. This is about everybody in the whole public relations industry who uses spin, politicians. They are, these people are not known for their high caliber of quality of uh, character. So in politics, of course, press secretaries will be really well-versed in how to spin, because journalists are going to be throwing questions at them. If these are unvetted journalists, which seems to be happening less and less. They might be throwing unapproved questions, which they couldn't have prepared or pre-prepared for. I guess just prepared. They couldn't have prepared for uh, without knowing it. So, but sometimes they do get uh, these uh, blind sides, and uh, they have to think on their feet, but not just to say something, but to spin the question. Uh, or the answer. And, and if you get really, really lazy, you get the Justin Trudeau's of the world who don't even bother answering the question. They just answer the question that they, they uh, wanted asked or whatever talking points they want to push. So the examples of uh, spin doctors can, uh, they can either command media attention. So these doctors can either, you know, be out in the open or they can remain anonymous. And uh, so you look at uh, NATO press secretaries, um, or or press press secretaries in the uh, in any government. You don't see them so much. I mean, you see them way more in uh, United States, of course, than in like uh, Canada, where the uh, well, you still see it a little bit, but not really so much. There's uh, there's no really press secretaries. If they are, they they're they're hiding better. It's they have the puppet uh, politicians like Trudeau out there. Uh, saying what they are uh, told to say. What is that? Is that coffee? Huh. wonder how long that's been there. <laughs> so what are the techniques that these um, spin doctors use? So they, of course, use uh, cherry picking. Uh, it, which is selectively uh, picking or presenting facts and quotes that support their position 
uh, whereas they may not show both sides of the story. They may just like, uh, as common as like, what about isms? Well, you did this, but they don't talk about what they did, right? So this is very common, but that, that's sort of a variant of cherry picking. Cherry picking is more just saying the points that benefit them, not being impartial, right? Being biased. For example, uh, a pharmaceutical company, and this is what they do all the time, if they do 100 trials of a drug and 98 of them are negative, they will show the two that are positive and not even mention the 98. They'll just throw those in the garbage because they have no obligation to show you those 98, right? They're just saying, look at this study, study X and study Y. These both showed it to be good. Never mind the 98 other ones that showed it to be bad. So that is cherry picking, and that's what pharmaceutical industries could do hypothetically. <laughs> so uh, a, a politician staff uh, could also handpick a uh, short speech of quotations from the past years to show their candidates' support for a certain position, and if you have a a politician who talks enough. And uh, especially if they're not committal and they blather on about a lot of things, you could easily find them um, supporting um, supporting X. And then you could find other uh, uh, instances of them denouncing X, right? I'm not saying X as in Twitter. I'm just talking about X as in the, uh, you know, a, a variable. <laughs> so, of course, there's non-denial denial. So what is a non-denial denial? A non-denial denial is a statement at first hearing seems to be a direct uh, statement that seems to uh, be clear cut in an unambiguous denial of some allegation or accusation. But after parsing carefully, it turns out to not be a denial at all, and thus not explicitly untruthful if the allegation is in fact correct. So it's, it's a case in which words that are literally true are used to convey a false impression. Uh, analysis of whether or when such behavior constitutes lying is a long-standing issue in ethics. It has been defined as an on-the-record statement usually made by a politician repudiating a journalist's story, but in such a way as to leave open the possibility that it is actually true. So this goes on to the whole interpretations, natural interpretation and literal interpretation. And this is what they would do, where people normally interpret something uh, they will use the literal interpretation of something. Or they might be the opposite. They might use the natural interpretation and say, well, obviously, this is what I meant. I was being sarcastic when I said that, right? So this non-denial denial phrase was uh, popularized back in the uh, Nixon era, uh, the Watergate scandal by uh, what's Woodward and Bernstein in their 1974 book, all the president's men in reference to evasive statements and equivocal denials by then attorney general john mitchell so william goldman's screenplay for the 1976 adaptation of the film 
Some of you might remember the movie All the President's Men with uh, was it Dustin Hoffman and uh, what's that blonde guy, uh, Sundance Film Festival dude. He hung out with uh, the salad dressing guy. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't matter. They uh, they talk about non-denial denials in there as there are uh, some reporters covering the uh, the whole thing, right? So, so this non-denial denial is often uh, uh, uses the the tools of rhetoric, uh, weasel words, right? So if you use a, a weasel word, it's a very non-committal thing. Like uh, if they ask somebody, "Will you, um, will your government?" Uh, increase tuition or increase taxes or whatever so the politician could then reply uh, we have no plans to introduce higher taxes or to do whatever you know nefarious thing they actually are planning on doing they could just say we have no plans to do it that doesn't mean that they're not going to do it but the natural interpretation of saying hey i have no plans of doing that that makes it sound like you aren't going to do it, but you very well may be going to do it. You just you didn't say you weren't going to do it. You just said you didn't have any plans to do it, which very well could be a lie, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's the, uh, it's the spin and it's using the, uh, the, uh, weasel words, right? Non-committal weasel words. That's so you'll see that, uh, a lot. And, uh, instead of saying, you know, we will not, we have no plans or a lot of one is to my knowledge, right? Or my memory. I do not recall that. I do not recall raising the taxes. I do not recall um, saying that or, or blaming other people, right? Well, that's not really a, I guess that's still spin, but this is, uh, again, I'm, I'm focusing on the non-denial, denial aspect of spin. Then there's also the, uh, the evasive um, non-answer. Uh, the the non denial denial they'll be like uh, did you um, did you do X and a politician or whoever may say I'm not here to talk about X I'm here to talk about right so this is a common trick uh, a lot of scummies will use right they'll uh, not it, it's a non answer but it's also a non denial denial so they answer your question you know did you um, did you take steroids? Thank you for asking me that question. I'm really interested in 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 uh, in, in trying to pin down uh, or, or clarify, and you know, let me be clear. I want to clarify the answer to that question. But but right now, I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about affordable housing and the problem with the opposition and what they're doing. Right? So, what they do is they just I'm not here to talk about right. The butts. So that is a, it's, it's not really a non-denial denial. It's a pivot. Another example of kind of a quasi-famous example of the non-denial denial would be by this Bruce Edward er, uh, Ivins. He was uh, in back in 2001 after 9-11, uh, shortly after 9-11 in October. The, uh, well, the U.S. government was trying to introduce the Patriot Act. Patriot Act right after 9-11, which was this massive tome that was being blocked by two senators. Um, what were they? Uh, Tom, Senators Tom Daschle and Patrick Leahy. 
and these two guys are trying to block the Patriot Act, Patriot Act, Act after 9-11 that happened to be prepared almost in advance. It was so thick. How could they write it so quick? Anyways, so everybody else, and they were the only two guys sort of holding back. And uh, miraculously, those two uh, received anthrax spores in the mail from Fort Detrick, uh, the U.S. bio uh, bioweapons research lab that uh, is affiliated with the CIA. And uh, anyway, so the uh, those two guys, they backed down. And the uh, Patriot Act was passed. Go figure. And uh, anyway, so the guy who sent the uh, the the spores, the anthrax spores from the uh, lab, was uh, this guy Bruce Edwards Ivins. And uh, anyway, so he uh, in two thousand eight he was suicided. <laughs> and uh, so in two thousand eight, that same year, he also made some statements to the FBI. <clears throat> Interesting side note, the CDC and the FBI both greenlit a university, I can't remember which one it was, to uh, destroy 70 years worth of anthrax research vials they had um, when they would have needed them the most to study who made this anthrax, right? So, ooh, CDC, let's trust them even more, right? Anyway, so... Uh, yeah, so in 2008, he made these uh, statements that the FBI called non-denial denials. And uh, shortly after that, he was suicided. And, uh, well, he was involuntarily committed, involuntarily committed to a psychiatric hospital <laughs> where he was uh, suicided. Just like the, uh, what's his face, that guy they threw out of the window, uh, one of the MJ-12 days. Anyways, so he said, I can tell you, I don't have it in my heart to kill anybody. So that is a non-denial denial. So he sounds like he's trying to deny it. So he's spinning his answer to sound like he's not answering or he's, he's denying, but he's not really denying because he just says he doesn't have it in his heart to hurt anybody. So there's the literal interpretation and the natural interpretation. The literal interpretation is he's not denying it, but the natural interpretation is that he's denying it. So he can try to squirm out. And this is uh, how some people lie, right? And so by spinning. And uh, next he said, uh, I do not have any recollection. So I don't have any recollection of ever. I do not have any recollection of ever have doing anything like that. This is in quotes. So it was, you know, when people talk, they don't talk with proper grammar, I guess, but I'll correct it maybe. I don't have any, I do not have any recollection. So this is what I was saying earlier. I don't remember of ever having done anything like that. As a matter of fact, I don't have no clue how to, how to make a bioweapon and I don't want to know. So he doesn't have no clue, right? So the double negatives, he does have a clue, but I mean, people just might have really bad grammar, but if this guy was uh, a researcher in bioweapons in Fort Detrick for 18 years, he's probably well-educated. He probably wouldn't say, I don't have no clue. He probably would actually say, I don't have a clue, but I don't know. Maybe he is uh, an illiterate uh, hillbilly working in bioweapons research in Fort Detrick. <laughs> That's plausible. Um, he also said, I can tell you I am not a killer at heart. So that is, again, a not a denial. It is a, uh, it's a non-denial denial. Did you kill him? I can tell you I'm not a killer at heart. <laughs> or not killed. Did you send, right? Did you send this stuff? I'm not a killer. 
Well, nobody asked if you were a killer. They asked if you sent it, right? So uh, I, if I found out I was involved in some way and and. So, well, that one's just kind of really not a non-denial denial. That's him just babbling, right? So I don't think of myself as vicious, a, a nasty, evil person, he says. I don't think of my, I don't think of myself as a vicious. So he's got some A's in there, but so I'll just tighten it up. I don't think of myself as a vicious, nasty, evil person. So he doesn't think of himself as that. Doesn't mean that he is or isn't, right? So that's a non-denial denial. denial. Uh, I don't like to hurt people accidentally in any way. And he names a bunch of scientists. Uh, They wouldn't do that. And I'm in my right, and in my right mind, I wouldn't do it. And then he laughed, which implies that maybe he's not in his right mind or he doesn't think that he's in his right mind. So it's a non-denial denial. Um. Okay, that's probably enough with uh, Bruce Edward Ivins. Not sure how to pronounce his name, but uh, yeah. So the CDC destroyed, and the FBI both greenlit the destroyal, destroyal, <laughs> the destruction of the anthrax research that the university had been doing for seventy years, just when they needed it the most. And uh, well, anyways, it turns out it was actually from uh, not Ames, uh, Fort Detrick. Um. That's probably good enough for non-denial denial in terms of spin. So next is the non-apology apology. So what could the non-apology apology mean? Well, a non-apology apology is a, uh, uh, for example, uh, I feel, I'm sorry you feel that way, right? So it's, they're, they're not sorry about it. They're sorry that you feel that way. So we hear this all the time by scummy politicians. Um, they're the most buzzwords at this point, right? They use them so often. But then you get the uh, even more scummier politicians that will say things like, sorry, not sorry, because they just don't care. Like the, uh, what's her name? Kathleen, uh, uh, yeah, Kathleen Wynne. She's a real piece of work. <laughs> That's a euphemism for piece of shit. <laughs> so, uh, a non-apology apology, sometimes called a backhanded apology instead of a backhanded compliment. A non-apology or a faux-apology is a statement in the form of an apology that does not express remorse for what was done or said. Now, I had an incident with the uh, local police where they overreached and I complained and they sent me a non-apology apology. So I said, this is not a, an apology. This is, you know, you're squirming out of it. And in the end, they pretty much never did. They just said he, he apologizes. So he, they said he, the word he apologizes. Well, apologizes for what? Right. Anyways. So, uh, yeah, so it, it assigns typically when somebody does a faux apology or a non-apology, or a backhanded apology, they assign fault to those receiving the apology. It's common in politics and public relations. Uh, For instance, uh, you know, saying, I'm sorry, you feel that way. So it's making you're the person with the issue, right? Or uh, it, it, uh, it doesn't admit that there was anything wrong with the remarks that were made or the event that happened. And maybe uh, the person simply took offense uh, as, as being a hypersensitive or irrational person, right? So another form of non-apology 
uh, does not apologize directly to the injured or insulted party, but generically to anyone who might have been offended. So <clears throat> I think of Trudeau. Instead of apologizing for groping uh, this reporter's bum, he didn't even apologize. He said, not he, he didn't even say that he should do better. He said Canadians should do better. So you people should do better. I groped a reporter's ass, and you're the people that should do better. Canadians should do better. <laughs> this is what kind of a piece of garbage is Justin Trudeau. So uh, statements of... Uh, pseudo-apology that do not communicate responsibility for the words or deeds may be meaningful expressions of regret, but such statements can also be used to elicit forgiveness without acknowledging uh, fault. So the, there's legal significance of this. In the United States, the non-apology apologizers may be trying to avoid litigation. So if you don't actually apologize for something, if you don't admit guilt, um, you're, you're sort of less on the hook because you didn't admit you did anything wrong. So you're not going to be sued as, as much, right? So you're less responsible or, or not admitting responsibility, which doesn't open you up to a lawsuit. So uh, I think it's in Massachusetts and California, they have laws to prevent plaint a plaintiff from using an apology as evidence of liability. Um, like you think if you get into a car accident, and you get, oh, I'm so sorry, right? You may not have been the person that did it, just, especially in Canada, you get a lot of idiots that apologize for no reason. And uh, it doesn't mean you're guilty, you're just apologizing, right? So, uh, or a doctor may, may apologize, you know, uh, uh, say uh, somebody's child goes in for surgery and they die and the doctor comes out and he's like, I'm sorry, but you're, you know, your, your child didn't make it, right? That's not, he's not admitting that it was his fault. He's just sorry that their kid died, right? But, uh some people might sue, saying, well, he admitted he was wrong. He said he was sorry, which implies um, guilt. So uh, an Alberta legislature in uh, uh, Canada geared uh, A18, geared at protecting apologizing parties from risks of legal liability and loss of insurance coverage. <laughs> so this act provides that an apology uh, does not constitute an express or implied admission of fault or liability. But in other places, if you apologize, you might be guilty. So that's why a lot of people do not apologize. They don't know. They're not sure what the laws are. And uh, if somebody's recording you on a phone or something, and you say, hey, man, I'm sorry. Well, that might legally get you in hot water. So uh, another example, uh, again, you hear this from Trudeau all the time. Mistakes were made. Made by who? <laughs> Canadians could do better. Right? So mistakes were made. It's a, it's a rhetorical device whereby, you know, the, the speaker acknowledges the situation was poorly handled or uh, it was handled inappropriately, but seeks to evade any direct admission or accusation of responsibility by using the passive voice. So you think of like the passive voice, like the tree was uh, pulled down as opposed to someone pulled down the tree. So... The, the, the passive voice is like you're trying to remove any human interaction, whereas the active voice, you're implying the, the person a little more explicitly, like uh, Steve hit the car or the car was hit, right? Um, mistakes were made. Steve made a mistake, right? So there's a difference, the, the passive and the active voice. So 
uh, definitely going to use the passive voice for spin, right? When you're trying to use the non-apology apology. So they use the, the passive voice, avoid any, uh, what's the word? Any uh, assignment of human interaction. Uh, the cup hit the floor or the cup, the cup was dropped, you know, as opposed to Steve dropped the cup. Who's Steve? I don't know, I'm just picking a name, Steve. <laughs> um, yeah, so an acknowledgement of uh, mistakes is framed in an abstract sense with no direct reference to who made. That's that's what I, it's a better way of saying it. <laughs> so the the acknowledgement of mistakes is framed in an abstract sense with no direct reference to who made the mistakes. In an active voice, a uh, construction would be along the lines of "I made mistakes." You know, there's definitely a verb. Right, uh, or John Doe made mistakes, or Steve made mistakes, like I was saying. The speaker neither accepts personal responsibility nor accuses anyone else when they use the passive voice. The word mistakes does not imply intent, just like they say missed truths. Missed truths instead of, fuck. They say missed truths instead of um, lies. Um. The New York Times has called the phrase a classic Washington linguist construct. Uh, political consultant William Schneider suggests this usage be referred to as the past exonerative tense. <laughs> like, I'm going to remember that. And communicator William Sapphire has defined the phrase as a passive evasive way hyphenated, passive evasive. So it's a passive evasive way of acknowledging error while distancing the speaker from responsibility of it. A commentator on NPR, the compromised, people believe it, don't believe it. Uh, a commentator at NPR declared this expression to be the king of non-apologies. So the, uh, the passive voice, according to this NPR goon, said that it is the king of non-apologies. Mistakes were made. Uh, while perhaps the most famous in politics, the phrase has been used in business, sports, and entertainment. There's uh, an if-pology. <laughs> so the attorney and, uh, and business ethics expert Lauren Bloom, author of The Art of the Apology, mentions the if-apology, or if-pology, as a favorite of politicians with lines such as, I apologize if I offend anyone. So it's an implied if-then clause, right? So they're not saying this is what happened. They're only saying hypothetically, right? I apologize if I offended anyone. If the event happens. So it's the, the then, the implied then first and then the if. Another example uh, of the if-pology would be Bill Clinton. He said, uh, I think it was Brooklyn. If the remarks on the tape left anyone with the impression that I was disrespectful to either Governor Cuomo or Italian Americans, then I deeply regret it. So you just use the if then. If the scenario, then I do this. Then I apologize. Um, but it is actually, that's not really a, uh, an aversion because you are actually apologizing. It becomes a true statement if somebody is offended. So you actually are apologizing. It's not like you're not. Um, taking responsibility, you are. Uh, if somebody happens to be offended, then I apologize. Right? So you are actually apologizing if that statement is true, if somebody is. So it's not really uh, avoiding the uh, 
the the apology. You actually still are doing it if that statement becomes true. I disagree with uh, John Cater, who uh, in effective apology says that adding the word if or any other conditional modifier to an apology makes it a non-apology. <sighs> Technically, I don't know. If this happens, if you're offended, then I apologize. But if the person is offended, then they... That's a true statement. So, uh, again, Don Lemon, the garbage subhuman from CNN, said, uh, if my question to Joan uh, Tarshish, Tarshish uh, struck anyone as offensive, I'm sorry. And that certainly was not my intention. So this would be a uh, non-apology apology, I guess, because they're not actually saying I am sorry, but they are. Again, if the statement is true, it is, it's an apology. So I, I disagree that the if-then conditional apologies are non-apology apologies. Uh, in terms of non-apology apologies, saying you want to acknowledge fault, you want to, you aren't, you just want to, uh, where such acknowledgement is appropriate. <laughs> so I want to acknowledge fault where such acknowledgement is appropriate. <laughs> Does it mean I am acknowledging fault where such uh, fault is appropriate? <laughs> right? You just want to, right? So that is definitely a non-apology apology. I want to, I want to, right? I want to apologize if, uh, if, uh, if it's appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't mean I am apologizing. I just want to. Uh, another example of a non-apology apology, according to uh, AOC, was uh, Ted Yoho called her a fucking bitch. And uh, so he apologized by saying uh, he apologized for the abrupt manner of the conversation. So he, he didn't apologize for calling her that. He just apologized for the abrupt manner of the conversation. So that's another thing, too, is apologizing for something that isn't what the other person wants you to apologize for, right? But then who do you need to apologize because somebody else needs you or wants you to apologize, right? You should apologize. Why should you ever apologize? Never apologize, <laughs> Anyways, in terms of uh, spin, a non-apology apology is to um, apologize for something like the abrupt manner or for the circumstances, right? Don't don't you don't have to apologize for the exact thing, right? That's you're not exactly apologizing for that. So other spin techniques we have uh, mistakes were made, uh, non-apology apology, a non-denial denial. And then we could have uh, speaking in a way that assumes unproven claims or avoids the question. So what what does that mean? Uh, uh, speaking in a way that assumes unproven claims. Well, that's begging the question or assuming the conclusion. It's a, an informal fallacy that occurs when the argument's premises uh, assume the truth of the conclusion. Historically, begging the question refers to a fault in the dialectical argument in which the speaker assumes some premature uh, conclusion. Yeah, so speaking in a way that uh, assumes unproven claims or avoids the question. In ethics, evasion is an act that 
deceives by stating a true statement that is irrelevant or leads to a false conclusion. For instance, a man knows that another man is in a room in the building because he heard him. But in the answer to the question, he says, I have not seen him. <laughs> right, so that's avoiding the question. And it's also a form of lying, which politicians do all the time. Uh, so another form of spin would be burying bad news. So announcing an unpopular thing when the media is expecting to be focused on other news, like during the Super Bowl, you can release a uh, have a press release that comes out and you know have some we're going to raise taxes or whatever, right? Nobody's going to notice, right? So you're burying the bad news. In some cases, uh, governments have uh, released potentially um, controversial reports on summer long weekends, and sometimes. Uh, other news is deliberately supplied by who? Hmm. Next form of spin would be, of course, misdirection and diversion, the old trick, right? That the look over here, and then you punch you in the gut, <laughs> right? So this is uh, when a government leaks a story to the news that limits the coverage of a more damaging story that has been circulating. So, um, uh, for example, uh, if... If a politician is having an affair, they might release, uh, and they, you know, the, the government, uh, it's somebody in the government, they might leak a uh, an investigation saying, oh, look at this, uh, you know, some royal uh, person is uh, being under investigation for something else, right? So they have these little files of releases, distractive releases, if somebody starts looking at uh you know, what's going on? Like, hold on a sec. Did, did anybody really prove there was no adverse effects to these vaccines? And how come the government reached so much? Uh, well, let's have a war, right? So then they, they, they well, let's have a, a war in the Ukraine, right? You distract everybody away from COVID. And then uh, when that, that starts going sideways, well, what's going on with here? How come we're putting so much money in the Ukraine? And we're, the, you know, the Ukraine's losing the war and the Russia, Russia's winning their what they wanted, and well, all of a sudden, let's have a terror attack in uh, in Israel. <laughs> Everybody forgets about the Ukraine now. Now we're talking about Israel. So, um, th these are higher uh, grade distractions I'm talking about, as opposed to just an investigation of somebody. But these are also forms of spin. Then there's, of course, limited hangout. So, what is limited hangout or partial hangout? It's a tactic used in uh, media relations, perception management, politics, and information management. The tactic originated as a technique in the espionage trade. So what could this limited hangout actually be? It, uh, the concept, uh, according to this Victor Mary or Marchetti, a formal special assistant to the deputy director of the CIA, a limited hangout is spy jargon for a favorite and frequently used gimmick of the clandestine professionals. When the veil of secrecy is shredded and people can see the wizard operating the machinery behind the curtain, they can no longer rely on the phony cover story of the head and the flames and the camera, right? So they resort to admitting, sometimes even volunteering, some truth while still managing to withhold the key and damaging facts of the case. So this is limited hangout. The public, however, is usually so intrigued with the new information that it never thinks to pursue the matter further. 
While used by the CIA and other intelligence organizations, the tactic has become popularized in the corporate and political spheres. So this is something pretty crazy, right? They give a, a conversation with uh, the president and uh, Ehrlichman. So this is Nixon, I guess. Uh, you think, you think we want to? What to go this route? Want to go this route now? And the let it hang out, so to speak. Well, it's it really isn't really that. It's a limited hangout. <laughs> it's a limited hangout. It's a modified limited hangout. Well, it's the only questions of the thing hanging out publicly or privately. So that's what they mean by limited hangout. You don't hang the entire thing out. You only have a limited hangout. You don't show the whole thing. You just show part of it. <laughs> so that's the origin. Oh, my God. So this is with uh, Nixon, Dean, and Haldeman, and Ehrlichman. So this is where the term came from. So Limited Hangout is just giving uh, some of the information, which appears to be the full story, but it in fact is not. Another example of spin would be the rewarding like-minded or amenable journalists with stories. Uh, we see this all the time, especially in Canada. They uh, bar and block and ban independent journalists or anybody who dares uh, question the tyrant uh, regime of Justin Trudeau. Uh, so they only reward stories to amenable lapdog journalists. Uh, there's an example of uh, back in the 60s, the Rhodesia crisis. Harold Wilson formulated a list of journalists that he trusted to write stories that aligned with the government's opinion. So I don't know why they give an example from so far back when all you have to do is look at any day in Ottawa. Uh, Trudeau and the CBC, and CTV and Global and all the compromised news organizations are, I don't want to say, they're sucking something. Um, another example of spin would be preventing access to journalists or broadcasts that are reporting to the disliking of the spin doctor. So this is, again, something you see every day in Canada. An example uh, would be uh, Rebel News. They bar Rebel News because they do not regurgitate the propaganda and spin that the Justin Trudeau press people want them to say to the public. They actually ask questions. So therefore, that whole news organization is framed by lapdog journalists as being something uh, undesirable. So that's probably it for, as far as I'm going to go into spin today, there's still a lot of things like the big lie, uh, distortions, cognitive distortions, corporate propaganda, uh, crisis communication, dead cat strategy, uh, dog whistles, uh, exaggerations, fake news, gaslighting, uh, impression management, um, yeah, there's quite a bit. Sexed up. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that'll be it for today. Happy solstice. Gladiule day one.